You can be seated, and if you've got any kiddos that need to go to children's ministry, you're free to dismiss them right now. If you'll open your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 4, Acts chapter 4, we're going to begin reading in verse 32 here in a moment. You know, uh, studying the Bible, I was thinking about this earlier, uh, studying the Bible is sort of like managing a a basketball team. You've got these five players, Uh, one of the players' name is is Context, you know, and another player's name is uh, Biblical Theology. And another player's name is, uh, is word study. And you've got these players, and you enter into a passage with these five players, you know that they're all going to have a role in helping you to understand a particular passage, but you also know that on any given night or in any given passage, one of those players will rise to the top and sort of be the star of the night. So sometimes when you're reading a passage and trying to understand it, the star player, the one that contributes the most, is maybe word study. You, you have some insight into a particular word in the text, and that gives you a, a, real, a better understanding of what that text is saying. Uh, this text, Acts chapter 4, verse 32 through 37, I would say that the star player to understanding this text is historical context. I think if you, uh, a, a, as I share the historical context of this passage tonight, or t- this morning, feels like night, I'm just tired. Uh, as I share uh, the historical context of this passage, I think you're going to see it better, and maybe you're going to understand why it's even in the Bible and what God's trying to accomplish through its inclusion in his Holy Scripture. So uh, I'm going to read the text now, but then I'm going to spend a lot of time talking about the things that are circling the text historically, okay? So uh, we'll, we'll get the text right now, and then I'm going to give you a lot of context. Verse 32 of Acts chapter 4. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them. There was not a needy person among them. For as many who were owners of lands or houses sold them. And brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So I'm going to give you two points that can't both be true, okay? So this is uh, point number one and point number two are option number one and option number two. And I'm going to invite you to think through what's going on here. And I'm going to give you my best effort at explaining it, but we're going to have to kind of conclude by asking, okay, which one of these is true? So option number one, and this is point number one of the message, is uh, 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 what I'm calling accidental awesomeness. Okay, you never happen to like, just like do something accidentally that winds up being cooler than it, you intended it to be. You know, uh, you throw something across the room and it lands exactly where you wanted it to or even better and so on and so forth. Uh, and then, you know, you play it off like you meant to do that. So I want you to imagine um, that you own a bunch of land that you owned a bunch of land in a very beautiful spot in 
California. And at some point, you heard about the AIDS pandemic in sub-Saharan Africa and decided that you were going to sell all of that land and build a series of orphanages in Africa so that they could have go on field trips and eat salads. Uh, so, so you decide, I'm going to sell... I'm going to sell this Californian property, and I'm going to buy some land, and I'm going to build a bunch of orphanages. Okay, so you do that. Now, suppose about 20 years after you sell that land, um, there is a catastrophic earthquake, and the whole state of California falls into the sea like an overmilked Oreo. You know, just gone. All of it. <laughs> it's just gone, Okay. Now, you didn't know that was going to happen. You didn't know that God was intending to do that all along. You were simply obeying God's call to liquidate your property, not knowing it would eventually be liquidated in a different way. So in return, you wind up accidentally being awesome. You wind up getting money for land when almost no one else did. You actually got something for your land. Most people didn't. So that's important to understanding the text because a few years after Barnabas sold his field, a great famine settled over Jerusalem. And there were basically no crop growth from this field for a very extended period of time. And then... About 30 years after Barnabas sold this land, the city of Jerusalem was utterly destroyed by the Romans. This was the single most catastrophic event to ever occur in the known world at the time. Uh, Larry Laporte and I were talking about this over lunch, and he was reading through Josephus's historical accounts of 70 AD, and I asked him if he would take some pictures and text them to me so that I could use them in this sermon, and he took some pictures of some of Josephus's accounts, and he forwarded them to me, and I realized I cannot read these in front of people who are, you know, below the age of 18. You would not, I, I just felt uncomfortable reading how dark and twisted the siege of Jerusalem was in 70 A.D. Let's put it this way. It was so bad. There were fires in Jerusalem that were put out by, by the volume of blood coming down the streets. Um, it was so bad. They ran out of trees by which to crucify people. It was, it was so bad people were arguing over corpses for food. Or I'll just sum it up all this way and say, okay, you want to know how bad it was? It was so bad that when people in Rome heard about what was happening in Jerusalem, some of them fainted and shuddered. That's meaningful because what did the Romans do? What was their version of going to the movies? They watched people being eaten by lions, and this was too extreme for them. So, one of the things going on in the background of this passage in Acts chapter 4 and also the ex uh, exhibition of generosity in Acts chapter 2 is that in a very short period of time, all of this land would be entirely worthless. And everybody living there would be dead. 
Those who survived only survived because they fled. So I'm presenting this as option number one. Maybe Barnabas was accidentally awesome. Maybe he sold his land right before the famine set in and then right before the Roman army sacked the city in what was at the time believed to be, without question, the end of the world, the Great Tribulation, so on and so forth. Let's suppose that's what happened. Let's suppose Barnabas was accidentally awesome. He just timed it right because he simply obeyed God. Well, that's a really good point, right? That's a really good thing to remember because that happens. When you obey God, God will take care of you. Uh, If that's what happened in this particular instance, then I think Barnabas proves what Jesus says in, in Mark 10, 29. Where Jesus says, truly, I say to you that no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come. So this this first option is sort of this accidental awesomeness that all proceeds from the simple desire to take care of brothers and sisters in need and he just winds up making a really awesome financial move so that's option number one option number two and then we'll call this one one shrewd dude all right so my initial readings several passes through this passage had me convinced that that option number one was the only option and that this was just one of those things that Barnabas accidentally did. And that's, my goodness, that's basically my whole life. You know, I tried to obey God and it worked out better than I thought it could. Uh, So I definitely am sympathetic to that category. And, And my first several passes through the text made me think, well, that's probably what happened. Only probably after the fifth or sixth time reading through it did I remember that Jesus twice in the book of Luke, forecasts the fall of Jerusalem. Actually, it's three times. Forecasts the fall of Jerusalem explicitly. And that someone like Barnabas might just have known about that. That, that, that Jesus' words, especially his pre- immediate predictions about the city of Jerusalem falling, um, you know, that seems to be the kind of thing that disciples would talk about you know, around the campfire at night. Hey, did, by the way, did you remember that Jesus says that, you know, so let me read those passages to you because option number two, option number one is that he accidentally got it right. Option number two is that he was a careful listener to the words of Jesus and he knew that selling this land at this time was a shrewd move. So for instance, in Luke chapter 21, Jesus says in verse 20, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, Then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart. Let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant, and for those who are nursing infants in those days. For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. 
In Luke chapter 23, this is Jesus actually on the way to the cross. Uh, Women are weeping, following behind him, weeping. This is after Simon of Cyrene is interjected into the story. And in, in, in Luke 23, verse 28, Jesus turns to these women who are weeping, and he says, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves. And for your children, some of the stuff I couldn't read was about children, right? For behold, the days are coming when they will say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? And that last statement is just Jesus saying, They're doing this with me here. Imagine what they do when I'm not physically here. So option number one was that Barnabas just obeyed simple Christian principles. He was generous with his money, and he accidentally just made an awesome move. Option number two is that he was paying careful attention to the words of Jesus and the forecast that Jesus, the prophecy that Jesus was laying down, that Jerusalem would soon be worthless and that this was uh, part of his motivation for selling his land. Which one do you prefer? I, I'm just curious. How, I mean, just think about it for a minute. Okay, let's do a hand-raising uh, thing. So would you prefer, I don't think this imputes any meaning at all in terms of, uh, you know, I don't think there's a wrong answer. Might be a personality thing, if anything. All right, so how many of you would prefer for uh, Barnabas to have just been accidentally awesome? Raise your hand. Okay, and how many of you would prefer for Barnabas to be the shrewd dude? I'm surprised that we got more shrewd dudes than accidentally awesomes, but not by a lot. I don't know which of those is true. I, I, don't, I don't know. I just know that by the end of the day, Barnabas had essentially checked off dozens of boxes in the teachings of Christ. He, he somehow wound up doing almost all of it in one action, like, he cared for his brothers and sisters, you know. He, he walked in unity. He loved them. He listened to, uh, he somehow wound up checking off all the boxes in terms of liquidating your land in Jerusalem. Uh, you know, there are all these things that this simple act of obedience did. And I think that's just representative of what generosity is. I think that generosity just winds up being this action that really, really, represents the gospel and the name of Jesus. And I don't always think that it can be uh, enumerated beyond, well, that's just a gospel thing to do. I think the motivations are different and the expressions are different. And I don't know how we get into all of that and understand it. I think what we could just say is that somehow... (laughs) If you listen to Jesus, you'll be generous, and you'll end up looking shrewd. I, what, what, what's really amazing to me about that idea, think about this. The day is coming when the most radically generous people in the church will wind up looking like they were shrewd investors. That's pretty interesting. So maybe they were shrewd investors, or maybe they weren't. I don't know. 
Maybe they were accidentally awesome and they were just obeying general principles. Or maybe they understood exactly what Jesus says in Matthew 6, 19 and 20 when he says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. If you obey Jesus, if you listen to Jesus, you'll be generous. And one way or the other, you're going to wind up looking really smart when it's all said and done because you will have put all of your investments in places that cannot be destroyed. And the rest of us will wonder, was he smart or just lucky? Not really lucky. That passage... Matthew 6, 19 through 20, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. That wound up being exactly what Barnabas did. And it really worked out well. Not only for him, but for the church itself. So those are the point one, point two. I don't know. I really don't know. But I do know this. If we listen to Jesus, we will be generous. And we will wind up looking on the other side of eternity, at the very least, like we really were pretty shrewd. Maybe for the first times in our lives. Point three. It's important, another contextual thing to know, it's important to remember that this wasn't just any land. Consider the central role that the land in question plays in the Old Testament. All right, so... You know how movies have objects that everybody's trying to get or pursue? Like in Lord of the Rings, it's, it's, it's the ring. The title didn't clue you in. You know, there's this, this, this plot device that winds up sort of being the central material or item in a story. And everything kind of pivots around that, that thing. Well, my cer- I'm certain that if you read the Old Testament, you'll, you'll come to see that the land in question... The land in Jerusalem, the promised land, is the central plot point, or so it appears in the Old Testament, that almost everything's about getting there or, or getting back there or holding on to it and who gets what and who fails to inherit it. There's a lot of blood shed to acquire this land. So when we're reading about this and we're seeing people sell their lands, we need to have some sort of a biblical theological category for what we're really seeing. And we also need to realize, like, well, this doesn't, this doesn't show up other places. Like, we don't see this in Thessalonica. Maybe it happened, but, but there's, a, there's an, an authorial intent. Uh, there's something being communicated by saying, in this moment, in Jerusalem, this particular land was sold. Because this particular land is very central to the story of God's people. You know, in Exodus, the land is held out to be a kind of heaven, really. Right? In Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, like it's kind of held out as, what's the promised land? You know, when you hear a, a, an old spiritual song about the promised land, what's the real, what's the real promised land, right? Heaven, heaven and the promised land were sort of interchangeable. This was sort of their the future glory that they leaned into and so this idea of inheriting this land like it's not just any land you know it's it's not like you know 15 acres in DeSoto or something you know it's it's interesting also when you think about selling land in Jerusalem 
you know, about 400 years prior in Jeremiah chapter uh, 32, Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet. He's called the weeping prophet because uh, in Jeremiah's uh, term as a prophet, during his days as a prophet, God's people are going to be captured. Uh, well, Jerusalem's going to be seized by the Babylonians. Lots of people are going to die, and lots of people are going to be captured and taken out of the land. And Jeremiah is witnessing and pr- prophesying that all this is going to happen. And uh, what, Jeremiah chapter 32 is very interesting because Jeremiah is actually in prison. Uh, the king of Israel put him in prison for prophesying that Israel was about to be destroyed. And God comes to Jeremiah and says, go out and buy a plot of land in Jerusalem. And uh, the way that land changed hands, remember this, maybe you don't know, but all the land in Israel was, was titled by uh, families. So uh, when Barnabas sold his land, he would have had to sell that, you know, almost certainly to someone in his family. And so uh, Jeremiah has to do that when God tells him, this is, you know, like 400 years before, God tells him, uh, go, go out and buy a plot of land in Jerusalem. And Jeremiah has to go to a relative to do that. He has to send someone because he's in prison. Jeremiah obeys God and he buys the land. But then he says to God, you know, this doesn't seem to be exactly a a buyer's market. You know, literally, literally, the Babylonian army is is encircling Jerusalem. And and Jeremiah had already spent like a bunch of Jeremiah. We're in chapter 32 at this point. There's a lot of there's a lot of Jeremiah before that that talks about how terrible Jerusalem's going to be and and how terrible the siege and the exile is going to be. And then Jeremiah's in prison, and God says, you know what, what I always encourage people to do while they're in prison is to start going out and buying land that is, that is at this moment being besieged by Babylonian hordes. And he does that. I'm sure he had no problem buying, by the way. I'm sure, I'm sure whoever owned the land was like, seriously? All right. So he obeys, he buys the land. And then he says to God, I mean, God, why... Why would you have me buy a field in this particular moment? And God says, well, I'm not done with this land yet. And he says, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to return my people from exile to this place. And this action of you buying land is just a, it's just a demonstration of my continued plan to use this land for my people. And now we get to Acts 4, and we see God's man, Barnabas, being led by the Holy Spirit to sell. It's a very interesting thing. It's a very interesting development. Because almost all of the other circumstances are the same. There's a siege coming. The Roman siege will be much worse. Why sell? Well, By selling his land, Barnabas is signaling that he has become a citizen in a kingdom not built by hand. His particular action of selling this particular land in this particular country is a signal that he is officially 
changing his passport. He's officially changing his citizenship. He is no longer counting himself a citizen of earthly Israel, now counts himself a citizen of a city that God builds, of a city that didn't reject Jesus, of a city whose foundations cannot be shaken. What's happening in Acts 4, it's very interesting, is is that because land is so central, and we don't feel that way when we read it, so we miss it. What's happening is a declaration. This God whom I serve and worship has now extended a kingdom and a people that crosses all racial and geographic lines. And I no longer have my identity tied into a particular patch of ground in a particular country because God is calling for himself a people from every tribe and every tongue and every time. What's happening in in, in many respects when Barnabas is selling the land and when these people are selling their fields is they're saying, I have a different homeland. Right? That's, that's That's a real basic, simple way of saying it. I have a different homeland now. But there's a second thing to think about, and we'll wrap up with this. That crazy moment when Barnabas sells his field, and then really almost immediately after this famine falls on Jerusalem, and it's bad. And this is before the Romans come. Barnabas would have made a profit in owning this field by renting it out to farmers or by farming it himself. The purpose of the land was to farm it. So not only is Barnabas signaling that he has a different homeland by selling this land, but he's also signaling that he's after a different harvest. Right? The harvest he is now living for and working for and leaning into isn't isn't soybeans or corn anymore or wheat. It's souls. Again, how conscious he was of the words of Jesus, I cannot say, but essentially Barnabas is saying, you know, this field, uh, um, you know, there's going to be some wheat here maybe at some point, but Jesus said that if I look out, I will see that the harvest for souls is white and ready right now. And I'm going to liquidate my investment in this earthly harvest so that I can fund the bringing in of more sons and daughters to glory. That's pretty cool. That's really where all of it kind of winds up. If you think about that passage, just like this is just a passage in which a group of people are exceedingly generous with the gospel and their generosity with the gospel demands generosity in other areas as well. I was thinking about grandparent generosity because I thought it was the perfect example of how grandparents suddenly become in powerless, like out of nowhere. Like they've, they've, you've managed your life for so long. And then we send our kids to our, our parents and they, they spoil them. And then we tell, we tell the grandparents, like we tell our parents, you know, mom, dad, like, please stop spoiling them. And suddenly these adults who raised you say, I can't help it. You know, it's like, like you have, you have like, you have made a living for yourself for 40 years, you know, this and that, like, I can't help it. 
The reason why I think that's important is because there's kind of, there's a generosity that is just that. I can't help it. Like, this is just what I want to do. And what's so interesting in Acts 4 is that the generosity, the I can't help it generosity, it's with the gospel first and foremost. Because the, the chief priests and the leaders tell them to stop uh, preaching the gospel. And the apostles are like, what are they, I can't help it. <laughs> I, I can't stop talking about what I've seen and heard. And, you know, in this passage from 32 to 37 in Acts 4, it's like all of this stuff is about generosity and giving, and that's all sweet and everything. But right in the middle is this one statement. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. And I would just end here, and I'll introduce in, in this way. One of the basic things the resurrection communicates is that seeds that fall into the ground and die bear much fruit. The, the, the gospel message is a message about the wisdom of sacrificial generosity prevailing in unexpected ways, vindicating the person who gave. And so no wonder Barnabas, whether intentionally or not, gets caught up in this rhythm and winds up doing the right thing. Because before he was ever generous with his land, he was generous with the gospel. And he was enjoying the truth of the resurrection. And the truth of the resurrection is, is when you think you've given so much that you will die, get ready. God will vindicate that giving. And much fruit will burst forth from it. And that's really, I think, a good place to point to when we talk about the Lord's table. This is Christ reminding us, being with us, saying, I gave my body. I gave my blood. It worked out, didn't it? It's, it's, it's Jesus saying that God-honoring generosity is always vindicated in the end. Let me pray for us and then we'll partake at the table.